You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. My name is Lewis Kornfeld and today I am joined by the great Becca Shaw. Hello. Hey, thanks for being here. Thank you. So as we were just saying, you and I have never once spoken to each other. I, I, we may have said a few words in passing yeah. at some point, but we have never officially met until right now. This will be our very first actual conversation. It's very exciting. I'm excited. <laughs> it's, it's pretty rare that I get to start from absolute scratch with somebody. Yeah. So cool. Great. I'm excited too. <sighs> Tell me everything, Becca. Oh my God. <laughs> I can't. There's nothing. Oh, I have one I want to start <laughs> off with. I loved your contribution to the 10 Minute Play Festival. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that was really fun. That was a really cool thing. Yeah. Glad we did it. Uh, I thought it was a very uh, smart and moving piece that you wrote. Thank you. For anyone who didn't get a chance to see the 10 Minute Play Festival, yours was following up on what happens with the highlights for kids, characters, Goofus and Gallant. Yes. Well, I pronounce it Gallant. I guess it but is. Some people say Gallant. You know what? It is Goofus and Gallant. I, I always think... pronounce it Gallant like an idiot. Well, I've heard that before. I don't know where I picked it up. But I don't up. know the official, like, if there's a, if what's the correct way. It should be gallant, I think. It should be? Okay. I mean, it's, it's spelled gallant. And gallant is defined by, by, like, by, by, by being gallant. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you're right. I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was cool. Was that your first time right. writing something like that? Yeah. Uh, that was, well, I, I wrote like a play in high school for a student directed plays, which kind of doesn't really count, but I. Uh, but otherwise I have never written a play until that. Uh, and, uh, definitely haven't written anything that's like 10 minutes long, which Mm -hmm. was sort of a weird length. Um, I've written lots of sketches that are like five pages long or three pages long or whatever. But I, I sort of thought of this as like, okay, how do you write a story that's like roughly Triple the length of a sketch. <laughs> That's sort of how I went into it. Is it like, because um, so much of sketch is about like just getting to the point and cutting out unnecessary material. Yeah. So did that like get in your way when you're developing a longer piece? Um, I think that was helpful in that I, um, the sketch part of my brain was like, okay, every line has to be really efficient and do a lot of work and it has to set everything up quickly, move relatively quickly to the point to a climax and then, um, and kind of have encompass a whole story within, um, 10, I guess, 10 pages or nine pages. Yeah. And so it was helpful to, to think about uh, with you know, if I was sitting down to write an hour long play, I think it would have been much harder because I think the constraint of length, uh, I was able to with that I was able to use <clears throat> some of the sketch writing tools to uh, like economy of language and mm-hmm. uh, et cetera to to fit it into those parameters. That was helpful actually. Yeah, I was impressed with the way it moved. It it, it um, it didn't, it felt like it had a really sharp, clear direction and didn't feel like 10 minutes. Good. Thank you. Um, sometimes plays feel like plays, you know? Yeah. And you're like super, 
conscious of how you're watching a play right now. And I think part of that has to do with like dialogue, not doing a lot of the work for you. So you got to cover for it with a lot of acting and mm. a lot of like emotion or, or like trickery and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so that was great. And, and I really liked the way that you approached it too, of just kind of like asking the logical question of like what happens next in there. What, what is, what are the emotional yeah. consequences of being brother and sister? One of whom is always being pointed to as the example of who right. not to be. Right. Yeah. I was just always fascinated by the, by that dynamic. For some reason, I was always really fascinated by that comic in highlights. Did you read it? When- I don't remember it in highlights. No, the only thing I remember in highlights is the, um, like, uh, what do you call it? You got to find the hidden. Yeah. Like a hidden, the hidden picture exercise yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. And actually, um, I babysit a lot and I, and I recently saw one of, one of the kids I babysit for gets highlights magazine. Mm-hmm. And so I, I quick flipped through it. This was literally the April, 2017 edition of highlights and they still have goofus and gallant in there. And, and it's very different now. And it started, they started doing them in like the, I want to say like the thirties or forties, mm. really long time ago. And it was very different then. It was like one of the ones from a long time ago that I looked up when I was looking up some of these, some of the old ones to kind of research for the play. One of them said like, Gallant always washes out the bathtub after he's done taking a bath. And I was like, that's crazy. Children don't aren't expected to do that but i guess um in in the 40s or whatever they were yeah I guess and, it, it was important like those families who had like nine kids and stuff you had to yeah. like and you it, you just like fill the bath once and the kids take turns using yeah. it and then like now now it's like it says at the top there's a little bit of goofus and gallant in all of us <laughs> so i think they've maybe started to realize that this is kind of a, I, I think there was part of me that when i was reading it growing up i always thought I had this weird sort of like almost morbid fascination with it because I thought it was sort of inappropriate where I was like, first of all, like one of them is the bad boy Mm -hmm. where you're you're sort of like, you're supposed to judge this person. And I think there was something about that that was really fascinating to me as like an eight-year-old kid or whatever. Yeah. And also that, that you get to, you get to see an example of like, this is bad behavior. And also that I felt I think internally that there was something wrong with it that they would say like, this is, this is bad and this is good. Mm -hmm. Like just drawing a line. And I think that's what kind of what always compelled me about those two characters that it was just that kind of expectation of like, there's one good way to behave. Yeah. It's, um, it's pretty cruel and shitty yeah. to make this poor kid your scapegoat for like, or your living example for everybody. I think about like the power of shame sometimes. And like, it's easy for me to talk cause I don't have kids, but I think like when you see kids like start to grow up and they go through their like little monster phase mm-hmm. and you realize like how important it is to instill a healthy sense of shame in a child <laughs> so that they cut that shit out. Yeah. But healthy I, sense of shame. But I say that from the outside, you know, looking in, but I also like... Like morality. Yeah. Yeah. But it, you have to like learn your own sense of shame. Like I remember real clearly saying the shitty things I say to other kids and then realizing what a shitty thing that was yeah. to say. And, and that makes an emotional imprint on you that lets you know for the rest of your life, be better than that. Yeah. But to have like grownups wagging that shit in your face all the time... I don't know if the lesson sinks right. in. I think you just internalize a, a bad sense of yourself. 
Yeah, you can't. You have to have the right balance. Yeah. Of you can't just like some of them were were just normal kid things. Yeah. Like you should be allowed to also make mistakes. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, but um, I guess I try. I had originally tried to write that as a sketch. Uh, for I forget even which team it was for, but I had tried to write Goofus and Gallant as a sketch, and it didn't really work. And then when I was looking for ideas for the for the play, I was looking back through old sketches, and I was like, maybe there's an idea in here that could become a longer thing. And uh, that one kind of stood out as like, oh, this could be good if it wasn't really a comedy. Mm-hmm. You're with Dinosaur Jones now, yes, but you've been with the sketch program pretty much since the beginning, right? Yes, yeah, since um. The second round of sketch teams ever. Which would have been when? How Which many was, seasons was that? It was about 2012, I want to say. Uh, I think it was the end of the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, I want to say. That was like the uh, like sort of fall 2012 was the first round. And mm-hmm. then I was put on a team and uh, they added two more teams. And I was put onto one of those in the, in the second there was a one season and then there was another round where they added two more teams mm. after the first three months. Where do you think you are now versus where were you in 2012? Oh, uh, you mean in terms of like sketch writing? Yeah. I guess like, like developing sensibility or, or kind of like where your priorities are right now or where your interests are right now versus where they were then. Well, in a broader sense, um, I was, at that time in before I got on a sketch team, I was just looking to be an actor period. Mm -hmm. Like I was, I had spent a long time after graduating, um, just auditioning and like trying to do theater and trying to do acting in general and not comedy specifically. And then, uh, once I got into a sketch team, that was also around the time when I had, uh, applied to, grad schools for acting and not gotten into any of the ones I auditioned for. And right at that same time, I got placed on a sketch team. And uh, I think I had been feeling really frustrated with just the uh, trying to do the acting thing in general, because it was, it was work was so hard to come by and it was so hard to like wait around for somebody to cast you in something. And so I feel like sketch suddenly like gave me a, a great sense of agency to where I could create my own work mm-hmm. and be performing every month or, you know, creating something all the time constantly. And that really, um, was really satisfying and kind of sh- ended up shifting my focus towards comedy specifically and narrowed my focus from like acting broadly to like the comedy world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so f- since then, it's sort of become more and more of the main focus of my uh, creative pursuits. Yeah, it, 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 giving you agency is 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 really interesting. I, I wonder sometimes, like, what are actors who don't write and don't improvise? What do they do with all their? Like, how do you stay yeah. in practice as an actor? Because you're yeah. not constantly working on production. So, like, how do you how do you be an actor exactly? Yeah. I think that's something everybody struggles with if they're trying to be quote an actor unquote, like yep. in a general sense. Um, I, I know a lot of people who struggle with that and uh, it's sort of like, you know, you can 
take classes. You can certainly take classes. I took lots of classes and, you know, um, you can get sort of sucked into uh, just feeling like you're doing a lot for your career, but it's not going anywhere. Mm. I mean, I'm sure you can, you, you can feel that way in the comedy world, of course, and you can feel that way and creatively in general. But I think especially with just straight actors, um, you can feel like you're taking a lot of classes and you're reading, you know, you're practicing your monologues and you're doing character work or you're doing creative writing pages or something. Um, and, uh, it's maybe stimulating to you on a daily basis, but it doesn't always make you feel like you're accomplishing something concrete. Yeah. Not to, not to knock it. Um, and I'm speaking out of turn because it hasn't been my experience, but, but it feels like you're always at someone else's mercy. You're at the mercy of who's yeah. going to cast you. You're at the mercy if you're chronically in classes and classes can be great. But if your main form of practice and self-expression is being a student in class, you're kind of at the mercy of teachers' opinions. And, and I mean, one of the nice things about branching off in something like improv or writing is that you, you get to become your own, um, uh, whatchamacallit, your, your own, you set your own standard for yourself. Yeah. And, um, I think at the time when I, before I realized that like comedy was like a thing that could be done, um, like was like a world that you could be in. Um, I didn't really know what form that would take. Like I didn't know what it would, what, what creating your own, um, characters constantly would mean i think i think i just didn't really know about what opportunities existed for people who wanted to perform comedically Mm -hmm. um such as you know now i'm aware of things like character bash or um you know uh different shows that are going on at the magnet that are constantly in rotation that are allowing me to do different things like um uh and even things like the play festival but I didn't know there was like a community of people like such as at the magnet uh, who would, you know, be able to provide more opportunities to do like a variety of things. I just kind of thought of comedy as like you're either on an improv team or you're a stand-up comedian. Right. And I didn't really want to do either of those things. So I wasn't sure. I, w- I wasn't thinking of that as like an option. Yeah. And um, what was your original question? <laughs> I think I got off track. Well, okay. it, it started with uh, uh, kind of like how have how do you feel like you've changed in the time that you spent in the program? Yeah, and I I think um, definitely. I mean, besides the obvious, like I definitely think my writing and performing and everything has improved um, hopefully over time. But um, I think that I feel a lot more secure in like in in that I know what it feels like to kind of like I have the muscle now practiced where I can, where I know what it feels like to create things that I want to do. And I didn't really know what that felt like before. I think I was, I had created, you know, some web series or characters and um, occasionally or made little uh, videos with my friends, but um, I wasn't really aware of like 
what I wanted to do. Right. I think, I yeah. think, it, I think that's the biggest thing is that the, uh, doing, doing all of this has, um, helped me figure out the kind of things that I like and the things that I like to be doing, especially in terms of comedy. Yeah. And then, and the fact that I like comedy the most. <laughs> I, I was having, um, this exact conversation the other day about, I was talking with someone else who had, had been in film school. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to film school and, um, and we were talking about how we, we both went to two different schools, but both of them were kind of like art centric. They were more about self-expression and, 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 um, you were really encouraged to like express your voice and explore your voice and whatnot, which is a, a pretty uh, tall order for a 19 year old. Yeah. And, um, I, I found that it wasn't until I got involved in, in the world of improv and comedy that my voice started just kind of naturally appearing. Yeah. And, and like, I didn't have a sense of what it was. It was kind of my, before that it was my imitation of other people's voices or what I thought I should be doing, but I felt very out of touch with, with my own sensibility Yeah. until you just practice it all the time in front of, in front of an audience. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. I think I was, I, I feel a lot more like there's Every every opportunity that I take on, I'm able to a little bit more delve into, like figure out and solidify, like this is what I like to do. And yeah. This is what I think is funny. And this is what my voice sounds like. I think I'm still in the process of discovering that. Yeah. There, it, I, one of the uh, things that I hated the most was doing like writing classes where people write out their material read it, and then you get critical feedback from everyone in the class. And what usually happens is when something doesn't work, people will point out that it doesn't work, and then the writer spends the next hour defending why they just <laughs> didn't understand, but here's the real, yes. like, whatever it was. I've certainly done that before. <laughs> Everybody has. But there, there's something so... I remember, like, Armando years ago, um, when uh, when I was doing the team performance workshop, we did a show that kind of bombed. And uh, he was giving us notes afterwards and he noted this one scene and the guy who was in the scene was like, well, actually what I was thinking when I made that move was this. And Armando said very meanly, well, let me get the audience back in here and you can explain it to them. <laughs> and it was like a real stinging <laughs> note, but like it's, it's a good note. It is a good note and it sticks with you. And, and you kind of learn that like on the one hand, if the thing that I'm doing doesn't play and the audience doesn't connect with it, then that's on me and not yeah. on them. I, I can't, I can't bring them back in to explain myself. Yeah. So you learn a lot about what works and what doesn't work. And only by learning about what works and what works for you, do you really start to hone your sensibility? And then you start to develop a confidence as you're getting a sense of your, of, of your own voice where you kind of rely less and less on the audience telling you what's good and rely more and more on like trusting your instincts of, of what's going to make you laugh. Yeah. And definitely in terms of, of writing, uh, as well as performing. Cause I feel like I, I've definitely improved my abilities in com- comedic performing realm, at least I hope, but, uh, I also, I think the biggest, the biggest change was that I'm, I'm able to write a little bit more in my own voice Mm -hmm. than I was several years ago. Yeah. Um, it's still hard though. I have to say it's still hard. Like some people find it a lot easier to write for themselves, their own voice, um, and not 
as much for other people. And I find the reverse is true. Yeah. Much very, very easy for me to um, write for other people's voices and, and for people on my team mm-hmm. than uh, for myself. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how you, you almost kind of like compartmentalize like a little tiny mind inside your own mind. All you got to think about sometimes is the tone of someone else's voice and, and yeah. you can kind of hear them speaking dialogue and you yes. just start jotting down the dialogue that you hear. I'm kind of similar, yeah. but if I'm thinking in terms of my own voice, I'm just... I'm like, wait, what do I sound like? Right. It's, yeah, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Some people know though. It's kind of, I kind of think that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's great when people know how to do that, but I, I don't understand what that feels like coming naturally. That makes sense to me. It feels like you're too close to yourself to, to, to get a, a, a handle on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I feel like. So what kind of stuff, like what makes you laugh? What kind of, where, what do you find yourself attracted to writing? Um, I guess, I guess like in, in dinosaur Jones, I've been, um, I definitely write, I've noticed that I write a lot of group scenes and I don't write a lot of two, two or three person small scenes. So I think there's something, I guess, about the group energy and, and like everybody having their own little piece to do in a group scene that I find really fun. Um, whether that's like inhabiting a world or just, just like um, the bouncing off of different interactions with different voices in, in a scene mm-hmm. is really funny. Um, but in terms of like actual tone, what I think is funny is, I mean, one of my, I will say like one of my favorite things that I try not to overdo because you can't write this too often is like, I love um, bad acting Mm -hmm. and making fun of bad acting and that's it's done quite a lot in in comedy to like parody bad actors but i almost can never get enough of that i could see i could see that all the time and it's still funny um do you do you like bad acting even when it's not in the context of comedy like do you enjoy watching movies that have um, bad acting in it um yes but yeah i like i really love watching the room i mean i yeah, stuff like that I, I really enjoy. Um, I it, it's a, it's a little cringeworthy for some people, and it is cringeworthy for me. But it's it's more fun than cringeworthy yeah. for me. I don't know why that is. I just really, yeah, like I I really enjoy. Um, I wrote a sketch actually a while ago for the misses, which was involved. Um, oh wait, no, maybe it wasn't for the misses. It was like before that, but it was but it was um, bad sports commercial acting. Mm-hmm. So it was like. Um, People who are washed up sports stars who do like ad placements for things. Yeah. I just, and, and I had to look up, had, I got to look up a whole bunch of really bad sports commercial, uh, commercials for, with, uh, with washed up sports guys and, or not even washed up sports, like regular athletes. I don't know why I keep saying sports guys instead of athletes. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> like, they they may not like for example if it were like Joe Montana doing a commercial for like uh, um, Honda yeah right exa- now, exactly he was an athlete now he's a sports guy he, right yeah yeah well this and and the one that I found for that sketch was Fred McGriff who did like a bunch of uh, baseball training videos I uh-huh. think and then and then um, and I I don't think he actually did terrible commercials. I guess he did commercials for his like sports 
videos, but, but like, um, there were other examples that I actually went out and found like these people have done bad commercials. And there was a, there was a kind of training video in the middle of the sketch, which was just a montage of all of like the worst sports commercial, uh, moments, um, usually car commercials. I can't wait to go home and watch it. Uh, I don't, I think it's online. I'm sure if I Google, if I Google bad sports, if you Google like, yeah, like bad, bad, um, athlete commercials or something, that's basically how I found all of them. And there are so many of them obviously on YouTube. And I just found that endlessly entertaining. There's like the, the thing of like, uh, watching like old SNL episodes whenever like an athlete hosts SNL is always like a particularly, I don't know. That's like the uncanny valley for me. Yeah. Like it has to be real bad acting. Yeah. If it's just a little bit bad, I sometimes I get too uncomfortable. Yeah. Like you feel, you feel embarrassed for them. Yes. Yeah. There's a, um, like a sweetness almost like bad acting on the caliber of the room where like Tommy Wiseau is like, you know, in a world of his own. I I don't think anybody even comes close. That's why I think I feel a little less bad. Yeah. Thinking it's really, yeah. It's hard not to think that's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I mean, I guess like it's fair to have mixed feelings about, about that movie, but yeah. it's not just bad acting. It's like bad acting, poor rhythm, bad, bad editing, bad editing, just like everything. Bad editing is also really funny. Bad editing, ed- editing is hilarious. Yes. <laughs> bad dialogue. Like just that one scene where he goes in to pick up the flowers is like one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Yes. It, it, I love that scene so oh, much. Hi, doggy. Oh, hi. It's you. Oh, hi. Oh. It's you. Okay. Thank you. Bye. You're my favorite customer. <laughs> yeah. Like the lines don't add up into a cohesive. It doesn't feel at all like, like people it, talking to each other. It was like you didn't even need the scene. Yes. In the movie in yes. the first place. I don't know why you have a relationship <laughs> with the dog. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Or you never see this person or this dog again. Yeah. It, it And and the rhythm of the scene is, hi, hello, I'd like some flowers. Okay. It's, I didn't recognize you. Yes. You're my yes. best friend. Hello, okay, doggy. Bye. Goodbye. It's it just like so bizarre and, and like, jarring. It's just jolt. Yeah. It's like jarring. Yeah. And, and you're like, whoa, that was crazy. Like he just has no sense of pacing whatsoever. Yeah. It's almost otherworldly how how like little feel there is for like human interaction in that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that kind of thing. Yeah. Just terrible. Like if it's really terrible, that's one of my favorite things. Yeah. What else do you find yourself writing a lot? Uh, or, or here's a super obnoxious question that nobody enjoys ever oh, being great. asked. Where uh, it, it, do you have like, um, do you have things that you do to get your brain going to start to kind of like sift through the ideas that you want to play around with? You know what? This is like this. I, I don't know if anyone else does this, but literally what I will do, I guess it's almost like an improv thing. But the the way that I usually like if I'm just sitting down, I have no ideas because sometimes I just sit down and try to write down a whole bunch of ideas. And then later I'll come back to them and see if like any of those ideas stand out to me and I want to try to write them. Um, sometimes I'll just like write down ideas if they come to me randomly. So I can sometimes like, you know, go back to those and, and start there. But if I have zero ideas, I will sometimes literally just sit 
in front of the computer and like look around the room and just like look at things Mm -hmm. like objects in the room. Like I look at that air conditioner and sort of daydream about like, Oh, air conditioning. It's really cold out. It's really warm out. I'm not allowed to use my air conditioner. And then like that thread will like go into like several more layers of detachment from that until I find something that's funny. Mm -hmm. Like I just literally like kind of, let my brain go off on a random tangent about any, about nothing until it lands on something that I'm thinking about or something that I think is, is interesting. And then you know it when you land on it. Well, I, I do know it if I land on it, but I wouldn't say that always I um, land on a good idea that Mm -hmm. way. It's generally like some, some nugget of an idea and then I'll kind of like write out the idea. And then that first, version of the idea isn't going to really work. And then I sort of engineer it from there from like, okay, I have this basic concept. How do I, what do I think is funny? Then how do I, I it's actually sort of an, an analytical process yeah. after, after I daydream for a little bit, then it's sort of an analytical of like, how can I structure this in sketch way? Sure. Uh, yeah. Like at first, like finding a way to like open yourself up to like the right image that clicks with you and yeah. then asking the right questions to figure out what angle cracks it open. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it could be just like, it could be something like a pet peeve or something that's annoying me, or it could just be like some fanciful idea that I had about like a world that could exist. Yeah. But generally my ideas come from like a world scenario and not a character place. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I, I remember, I think this maybe was in like the live from New York book or something or some interview about SNL. And I forget who it was. Someone was saying the people in the room who were writing brains were always thinking the ones who were thinking of the ideas from the greater, like a, a weird scenario or a weird um, setting for their sketches. And then the people who were the actors were pitching ideas that were from weird characters. Mm-hmm. And I always thought of myself and sort of still do think of myself as like a performer before a writer. And so, but I don't have that character first uh, writing instinct. Yeah. It's always world first and then character second, usually. Yeah. I, I read that too. I think it, it may have been um, Robert Smigel might have said it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that that the actors would always get bored with the writer's idea because the writer idea was always how do we put normal people in a crazy situation? Yeah, <laughs> and that's like more what I gravitate to. I think sometimes. Yeah, I like normal people in weird situations. I do too. I find that funnier. I I, I have like a little bit of I, I get turned off pretty quickly if a character right out of the gate is already insane. Yeah, there's something that I I. I've, find like a little aggressive about the I mean I'm thinking of it in like the broadest sense possible I'm thinking like Adam Sandler territory of like coming in with like your voice or whatever yeah I mean I mean I don't think I think uh you don't you you can't have your character be totally insane because otherwise it doesn't work you have to have some part of them that's grounded I mean I I'm not saying that I don't like totally insane things because sometimes I definitely do yeah but like um I really I definitely enjoy a a great character that's a, a sort of balanced between crazy and has some reality to them. Yeah. But I, I guess I don't think that way as often. And that's probably related to the fact that it's hard for me to write for my own voice mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I'm not sure how that's related, but 
Yeah, no. <laughs> no. That's interesting. Yeah. Do you have, um, have there like been any sketches that have, you have thought were really funny, but for whatever reason, you've never been able to crack it and get it on stage? Oh, I'm, yes, there's been so many. <laughs> would you be oh, willing God, to share an example of something? I can remember one. That... <laughs> that would be great. I don't know if I can remember one off the top of my head. Okay. Um, that I think are really funny, but I never could get on stage. Um, yeah, there, there were definitely, I, I don't know if I can think of like the best example of this. There is, I guess I've brought this into Dinosaur Jones. So if I talk about this, we'll, it'll probably never go up, but that's okay. Um, I, I brought this sketch into Enemy Planet and then it didn't work for some reason. And then later I brought it into Dinosaur Jones and it just didn't, I don't know what happened. I don't know. It wasn't like, it, it was met well, but it just didn't get chosen for the show. And I don't know if it was like, I, maybe it was just kind of not at the top of pack that month or whatever, but it was like um, a Biggest Loser parody where one of the um, the contestants comes out at the end and they're like, hey, kids and Steve, are you ready to see your wife? Are you ready to see your mom? She looks great. She's like been on the show for, she's been here at the ranch for six months or whatever and she's, uh, she's lost so much weight. She looks really good. And then she comes out and they can't see her because she's two-dimensional. <laughs> So she's lost so much weight that she lost an entire dimension and like, they're really proud of her. The trainer's really proud of her. And then there's like a, maybe part of the reason that we didn't want to put it up was because it, it involved like a time-lapse video of, which would be a little bit complicated, but like her running on a treadmill and then, um, her like, uh, fat Marsha running on a treadmill and then like skinnier Marsha and then uh, just a treadmill with no one on it. <laughs> and, um, and then basically, um, the trainer is really proud of her and the kids and the dad are like very concerned and they're like, we can't, we can't see her anymore, but they're trying to be proud of her at the same time. Yeah. I just, I liked, um, making fun of, um, biggest loser. <laughs> I love it. Um, and, oh, and, and then it turned out at the end that she was, uh, actually had just died on the show and she wasn't really two dimensional. <laughs> they had just killed her because they, she exercised too much and she died. <laughs> I've never seen Biggest Loser, but, but I, I do remember like, um, all those like old talk shows where they would do like the makeover episode and have like, take like, this is my dad and my dad has like long hair and a beard. And for 30 years, he's always dressed like a biker. Well, we're going to make your dad over for, yeah. It made me feel like, fuck you. I know. Get off these people's back, will you? I know. There is something really sad about the makeover shows a li- to me. Well, a little bit like, like if you don't, but if you don't think you look better, you're wrong because mm-hmm. you, you object Like there's objective standards of how, what better looks like. Yes. And we just want to show you what that looks like on a- your body. According to the social agreement, the rest of us would much prefer we for you to prefer- look this way. Yeah, exactly. We don't enjoy the way you normally are. Yeah. We, we want you to look more like a statistical average. Yeah. we. There are certain rules that you're not adhering to by wearing this very long hair and beard. And society agrees that you shouldn't have that anymore. Yeah. yeah. It's in- incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. There's something super creepy about a whole studio audience like applauding and yeah. for that. It is really creepy. And and also I'm obsessed with watching those shows. Yeah. So like a love-hate relationship. Yeah. Yeah, what is is it just like the fascination with like seeing like 
uh, our own ugly side projected back to us. Like, why do, why do we want to gobble up trash so I much? I think it's really satisfying on like a deep, well, first of all, I think it satisfies our our deep need to judge people. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody has this like <laughs> yeah. lizard brain that needs to judge others and yeah. be like, I'm better than that person. Yeah. Cause I don't dress like that. I'm not fat like that person or whatever. And then, and then when they, and then you have this moment of like catharsis when you're like, they're so happy. Look at how happy they are now. They were upset and now they're happy. And maybe if I'm upset, I could be happy. Mm-hmm. There's like another part of it yeah. where it's like, people can change. And if they can change, then I certainly can change because I'm not as bad as that idiot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess it's, it's like, it's exact. It's like the stuff of like Victorian melodrama. You're like equal parts superior to these people and then have like an emotional experience as you like find yourself somewhere in their story. Yeah. Ugh, gives me the like, chills. <laughs> what thinking about the biggest loser? Not the biggest loser, but a makeover uh, show. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Like what not to wear. I haven't seen that either. I'm thinking like old school '90s makeover shows. I haven't. Yeah, I, I mean I they're kind of all the same. Stuff. They're yeah. all the same. Yeah. It's just like this is this is what dumb Steve looks like now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Soon he'll be regular Steve. Yeah. Check out regular Steve after we put him in this suit that we got from fucking whatever fucking yeah. Banana Republic. Yeah. And everybody that. cries and they're really, really happy. Yeah. It's not, it's like, it's a little disturbing how happy people are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, agreed. When people are like, oh my God, I'm just crying because you're wearing a dress. <laughs> Literally, that's what they do. Yeah. Like a crowd of people is crying because finally she's wearing a dress and she can see her own beauty now. But I'm, but a lot of them are like, no, I, I feel beautiful now. I like wearing only turtles on my on my outfits. That was a real person on that show. Yeah. She only wore everything covered in turtles. She loved it. Yeah. And they were like, we need, you need to throw all your turtle stuff away. Why? Who makes that decision? I guess the, they have to sign a contract that says they're going to throw away all their clothes on yeah. what not to wear. <laughs> I don't know that they actually do, but like, I think they at least throw away some of their clothes. That at least would they be pretend to throw away their clothes. If like the production staff at what not to wear took it like real serious and there was like extensive follow up I'd like to make sure that you are like I always to your wonder makeover. about that. <laughs> I don't think anybody follows up on it. I, I don't I don't watch that. I watch don't. I watch like hoarders, you know, which is another like very upsetting yes. show to watch. That's a that's too upsetting for me. I can't even it's extremely upsetting. Yeah. And 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 what bothers me, and I have the same sick fascination with it of like, I feel disgusting at the same time as I'm like compelled to keep on watching. Yeah. I feel disgusting, not disgusted. You know, yeah. I feel like a gross person, but there's that same thing of like quick fix. We bring in this company to like clean all your shit for you. And yeah. uh, we give you like a week of counseling and then good mm-hmm. luck, which is yeah, like, you didn't do anything. Luck. You didn't do anything. Now, I'm sure there's no follow up whatsoever to these people's lives. Yeah. Same thing with like Gordon Ramsay's like, uh, uh, shows I read a thing about like he goes in to like fix like the nightmare occasions yeah. or whatever and then there's no follow up and like 78% of them yeah. are closed within or like Restaurant six Impossible same thing yeah I I, I uh, whenever I watch that show I always look up the restaurant that yeah. they're on and they all always gone. they're always closed down yeah restaurant business is hard yeah and it's not just a quick fix it's like you gotta change all your habits and I mean if you're like driving a restaurant into the ground 
you're not going to suddenly wake up because a TV show comes in for a week. I think that's why we really like those shows is because it's like you can, you feel like you can solve problems within like a half an hour. Yeah. You feel like really bad at the beginning and you feel great at the end and then you stop thinking about it. Yeah. And it's like resolved. And you can't do that in real life. <laughs> yeah. Real life is a lot more boring. You have to like commit yourself into the long haul for shit. Though change is possible. Yeah, I guess. We should all drown ourselves in television. I guess. No, just kidding. We probably shouldn't. We probably shouldn't, but we will anyway. We can't stop ourselves. We just, we're like, we're addicted to the feeling of like company. You know what I mean? Like you just kind of feel like you always have company. Yeah. My company is hoarders and (laughs) people, (laughs) we dumb Steve. Right. (laughs) Right. Oh God, Jesus! Let's take yeah, but it makes you thing. feel better about yourself. Until it makes you feel much worse about yourself, though. Like yeah. I, it like it's like a sugar hit a little bit. Yeah. Like you feel a little bit better, and then you feel a lot worse. And then you're like, oh, there's a lot of really sad people. Truly, yeah, truly. Although there is one episode of Hoarders that's pretty fantastic because, like, it's the same story in every episode of Hoarders. They come in, uh, um, they try to begin cleaning this place. Person has a complete emotional breakdown. Because every single piece of trash in their home has some like yeah. deep rooted meaning to them. It's like literally pulling at their skin. Yeah. Yeah. There's one episode where there's this one guy who has this like horrible, filthy, fucked up apartment. Woman comes in, starts cleaning it. He's like, you know what? This is a new leaf for me. I'm just going to, I'm going to let you mold me. Oh, and no. it, it becomes like I super clear. Go well. No, it's great. It's like really awesome. She she throws everything out. He doesn't put up a fire for anything. She redecorates his whole apartment and like halfway through the episode, they never say this, but you realize he just like used it as an opportunity to get someone to like clean up a shitty apartment. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of not a hoarder. He's just like, he doesn't have any of the emotional, uh, um, hallmarks. He's not a hoarder. Hoarding. He's just messy. He's just like really messy. <laughs> I would love to do that. Yeah. I would love someone to clean up my apartment for me. I know. <laughs> But his attitude is so funny. He's like on the side watching her, just like eating a sandwich. And he's like, it can all go. It can all go. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, take it all. Oh, no. Please don't take that. That's fine. It's okay. (laughs) He's like, so funny. Oh, my God. And the detail that I remember is she like cleaned his bathroom and then put like a bunch of scented candles on his toilet and then put like rocks with like inspirational words like oh etched God. into the rock like peace and friendship and shit Stop like right into that not even he didn't need because he wasn't <laughs> really he hoarding he was just like lazy wow that was the one episode that i was like That's okay really i feel funny. i feel okay laughing yeah i feel okay with this <laughs> oh i wish Jeez. i could steal that for a sketch but it's already real go for it take that one <laughs> i think that there's something in the uh in the uh makeover show that that's in it for the long term yeah eventually sure i'll write a, a makeover show sketch that will go up <laughs> let me know when it happens okay I'd love to be there <laughs> uh what's life like for you outside of the realm of comedy oh man you've spent time nannying yes i do a lot of um babysitting uh all of the kids I babysit for are the same age. They all, um, incidentally, they all like came from the same class. My, my friend was a teacher in like a preschool and, um, she started babysitting for several families and, um, then also, uh, connected me with those same families. So we kind of both babysit the same kids cool. for uh, a few of them. And, um, so I've been babysitting the same kids since they were at least one of them since she was like i 
I think six months old or eight months old, wow. which is seven. And um, same with uh, the other two are also seven. So I spend a good amount of time around seven-year-olds. Um, and I do uh, transcription for a market research company. Cool. Which is sometimes interesting and sometimes not as interesting. I want, I want to back up for a second. Oh, yeah, sure. What are the tricks of relating to a seven-year-old? Oh. What, what have you gleaned over that time? Um, Legos yeah. are a big deal. Legos are great. Um, are they like regu- regular Legos or like the do No, regular. Yeah. Um, now there's like very elaborate setups. I mean, there always were elaborate setups, but now there's like Lego friends, which are like Lego characters, but now all the girls have like long hair and, and outfits mm-hmm. and you can like put on different outfits on them. And they, they definitely didn't have Lego clothing for people when I was younger. But no, it was just, it was just painted on the, on the torso. Yeah. They have real clothing and oh. real hair that you can switch. And then, um, then that's sort of like generally a girl thing as far as I can tell. Um, cause all the characters are girls. <laughs> and then, there's Star Wars Legos, which is like massive, obviously. Um, and everybody, ha- all, they all have Star Wars Legos. They're all, for some reason, all at least the boys are into Star Wars. Very, very huge. Yeah. Um, and I, I hate that. You hate that people aren't. It's like all Star, Star Wars. Wars. No, I'm fine with people getting into Star Wars. I hate like. But like the new. Well, when I was a kid generation. playing with Legos, I, I liked the fact that, like, the Legos were, like, independent of any, like, movie franchise. It was just right. kind of like, I am, I get to, like, daydream about these people on this pirate ship. I have no yeah. reference for what this yeah. is. But now it's like, you got to, like, go through some fucking movie. That's the biggest thing with Legos that I've noticed is that they're all branded to either, like, Lego Batman. Yeah. So they're, like, making the Lego movies now. It's almost like they're making the products first and then they're making the movies about the products yeah. and then they reverse engineer selling the products. Yeah. So they, so there's Lego Batman and, um, and just Star Wars is a really big deal. Everybody, I had to draw like a large replica of a Death Star the other day to put on a kid's door. He was like, so go to your phone and just Google how to make your room look like the inside of the Death Star. <laughs> he literally like tried to grab my phone and type that in. And I was like, I can do it. And so I typed it in. And of course it was like, here are the things you can buy to like yeah, Star right. Wars things to put in your room. And so he was like, okay, well that's fine. Let's just look up some pictures of the Death Star on the inside. And then we'll make my room look like that. And I was like, great, this will take all day. Yeah. <laughs> it took several hours of like um making various like I had to make a stormtrooper mask out of uh paper and string. Um I'm not super into like running around and playing lightsabers. Mm-hmm. It's not like my favorite thing to do. So um I much prefer the drawing uh masks and um and or like making art decals of the death star to put on someone's wall i'm sure it's like much more it keeps them occupied and it's like much more exciting to me it's like the difference between like buying takeout versus like making your own dinner it's like it takes time to make it but there's like i appreciate doing it yeah like i and i like i I like that they're that they're taking the initiative to like make their own yeah totally stuff and i'm into that um it is a lot of it they can be very demand seven-year-olds are very demanding like I would say that's the biggest thing to take away about seven-year-olds is that 
they know what they want and they will tell you. And if you do it wrong, they're very upset. Like there's a right way to do everything and you're always doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And everything that happens that goes wrong is definitely your fault and 0% their fault. Do you tolerate that well? Because I, I, I don't know if um, I would be yeah. able to retain my adult objectivity and not just be like, "Shut up." On the ins, on the on the outside, I I maintain it yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> on the inside, I'm like, "This is 100 percent your fault." <laughs> what are you doing? Stop blaming me. <laughs> He's like, "Um, I don't know. It doesn't really look like this picture of." The Death Star. And you draw it. Like, well, and he's like, "Can you hurry it up a little bit?" Literally, I'm draw. I'm literally cutting out a life, like a not life size, but like like a huge yeah. circle from paper of the Death Star that I just drew. And he's like, "Can you hurry it up a little bit?" Like, um, I'm not going too. I'm sorry, I'm going too slow. Yeah. For your needs. Yeah. Plus, where do you have to be? Yeah. I'm going to be here for the next four hours. <laughs> yeah. What? It's like. Um, okay, so while you're doing, I'm like, okay, it's time to pick up your room. And one of them, one of his kids will be like, okay, um, so you're going to pick up this, this, and this, and I'm going to go over here and read this book. And he's like totally saying it in like not a root, like he just thinks that's a totally reasonable thing to say. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, no, you have to pick up your your toys. He's like, no, I think you should do that. And then I'll read this book. And then, but I really have to do this. So I'll do this and then, and then I'll do something else later. I'm like, no, you have to, this is not a negotiation between us. That's when you're like, let me tell you a little story about two twins named Goofus. Yeah. Guess which one you're being. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you a hint. You are not gallant, my young friend. (laughs) Oh man. Jesus. I though I should preface by saying everyone's a little Goofus. Yeah, correct. (sighs) Yeah. Right. Right. Yikes. Well, seven years with the same, kids you must yeah. feel very close to them yeah it's great it's really nice it's something i really value having i'm really glad that my friend um hooked me up with those with those gigs yeah um yeah it's really so fun where's your like compass pointing these days that's a large I know, question i know it's the big one <laughs> um well um i'm i'm really enjoying uh creating um creating characters and um doing comedic performance and uh i i just i love the idea of um being able to act and also to create my own work and the uh, obviously the ideal would be to find a source of income within that mm-hmm. um so i'm i'm sort of trying to reach the feelers out in as many directions as, as possible in terms of like getting exposure and, um, experience in those areas in in the comedy world. It seems daunting, doesn't it? Yes. It's very daunting. Um, and there's no clear one way to do it, which is kind of why, um, you know, my philosophy right now is to try to reach out in, in many directions and see which ones unfold. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm writing some, uh, pilot scripts and uh, trying to develop more of like a solid writing packet that could be versatile for various types of media. Yeah. Not just sketches. Yeah. And um, creating um, my own 
shows that, you know, hopefully with, you know, both with Dinosaur Jones and On My Own that like feature me and my sensibilities and also like all the people that I know that are, that I think are great. Um, and I really do, I really do value the collaboration with a group in creating a show. So like when, for example, when I was doing my solo show the past year, I missed that a lot, even though it was a really fun thing to do. Um, I think my ideal is like being a part of Sorry, I just went away from the microphone. Is um, just barely. my ideal is um, being a part of a, a group of people that like each other who are making stuff we like. Yeah, <laughs> to put it in the most vague way possible, um, that would be my goal. I mean, I I love television and I love film, and I would love to be involved in those things. Um, and so it's it's there are many moving pieces to actually doing that, which are hard to navigate yeah but uh i'm hoping that each small thing that i do is kind of coming together to create a a whole in that general direction if that makes sense yeah it does i think that's an important like thing to be aware of too when you're like mapping out your own like steps for a career it's easy to kind of think of yourself as like an isolated unit aiming in that direction but if you if you know that like the community aspect of it is something that feels good to you is really important to you mm-hmm. it it like far i think that that might not actually be very obvious to a lot of people i think a lot mm-hmm. of people would would notice that they like the community aspect of working in a group and then ignore that to just focus on their own career and kind of miss out on mm-hmm. how your career might actually happen. Because if you know that that traveling with a group is really important, you're going to end up hanging out with people and, and connecting with people that you like being with, and some kind of weird side door is going to open at some point for you. Yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of the hope. Yeah. <laughs> and And it sounds really vague. I mean, I think that's probably what a lot of people in this community uh, – have to deal with yeah. is like there isn't one thing you can do that's going to open a door you have to kind of it's different for every person so you just have to do what you love to do and i think being being with this last sketch team dinosaur jones has been a very um satisfying uh, experience in that way and and continues to be um and in, in that we all really enjoy, we all feel, I think we all feel like we are um, equal, equally committed to creating something that we love. And I have not experienced that on, on every team that I've been on. Um, it sometimes feels like some people are putting in certain amounts of effort. And some people are, are holding back a little bit or more focused on themselves and, um, I think with this team, uh, I've been able to experience the, um, the, like the full joy of, of everybody committing to one common goal and, and caring about it a lot. And I think that's, that's really my ideal. What I, ideal, the ideal would be getting paid to do that. Yeah. Right, right, sure. <laughs> so yeah. whatever that means, you know, and, um. Yeah, I think um, 
in the meantime, while, while we're all trying to do that kind of separately and also together, it's, it's nice to be able to, to be creating something on a consistent basis that, uh, even if we're not getting paid, it's still really satisfying. Not being paid yet. I think it's the the good way to think about it. Yeah. Not being paid yet, but hopefully, you know, we're all finding our own ways to do that. For sure. When, uh, when is the next time that, uh, we can see you play with Dinosaur Jones? Oh, um, well, we are starting our Friday run mm-hmm. on April 21st. Sweet. And, uh, that's 7 PM, right? 7 PM. Yeah. <laughs> Just looked at Evan to make sure. He knows. He knows it all. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. 7 PM Friday, April 21st is the beginning of our uh, run of Friday shows, which is going to be awesome. I'm really excited with the executives also. And um, that's going to, that's going to be every Friday. So anytime you have a Friday night open, come over to the magnet, come see some sketch. You haven't been able to see sketch on Fridays consistently it's yet, which is very exciting. Yeah. I'm really excited that they're doing it. And I, I know I can't really divulge any secrets, but I know there are lots of interesting, new, exciting things in the works for those shows. So come out and see it. Fridays sure. at seven friends. Please. Hell yeah. Um, it's going to be awesome. Cool. Kick ass. Yeah. Becca Shaw, it's been a real pleasure talking. Thank you, uh, Louis. Officially, awesome. you are too. Thanks. Uh, anything else you want to plug? Uh, oh man. Great question. Um, I mean, I think that's, I think that's the main thing. Come, cool. come see Dinosaur Jones over, uh, you know, April, April through July. We're sending the sketch season all the way into July. So come, come see those. Sweet. Yeah. Sounds thank great. You. Fridays at seven. Great. All right. All thanks, right. Thanks, Becca. Thank you. And thank you to all of you good, kind, fine people for listening to the show. A couple of other thank yous. As always to our producer, Evan Ford Barton, to our executive producer, Ed Herpsman, uh, and to our, today's guests. Becca Shaw, please do come Fridays at 7 and see Dinosaur Jones and the executives paired off. Uh, you've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a positive rating on iTunes and mention us in social media as it boosts our social media profile. Thus, of course, boosting our sense of importance and self-worth in the uh, mediated world that we all currently live in. Thank you for listening to the show, everybody. Hmm. Goodbye, friends. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.